You're listening to the Communicate with Confidence podcast with me, your host, Luke Maxwell. This podcast is dedicated to helping you build confidence, increase your communication skills, and journey with me in the relentless pursuit of what you want most in life. In this episode, number 105, I have an example for you from a speech that I gave just a couple days ago at an event in correlation with the diocese of Saint, the Catholic Diocese of Orange and different mental health organizations, I gave my testimony there, um, and it was just a great event with a great audience. And honestly, it's one of the best speeches I've given. It's definitely in my top. And so I wanted to give it to you um, as an example of how to deliver a testimony. There's, I'm not sharing information. I'm not telling people, you know, what, not necessarily like what to do. Like I am, I have a call to action, but it's purely story. And I wanted to show you how to do that. And even if you don't have a huge story, even if you don't have a massive and complicated story like I do, you can still use this and use kind of the highs and the lows and the storytelling and kind of listen to it, or you can watch it. I'll have the link in the show notes at loopdmaxwell.com slash podcast. So you can actually watch my, watch me speak. But I found that I learned so much by watching other speakers who I admire. And so I wanted to give you this speech as maybe something that could help you as well. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my testimony. Thank you very much. Our next speaker, where is he? There he is in the back. It's sort of a force of nature. Well, I got Luke through his dad, actually, who connected us. And he spoke here once before, and I think he electrified the audience. And so he's, gonna, he's back for a return engagement. So I want to introduce Luke Maxwell, and he's going to tell you his story. So today we've heard a lot of the great, you know, clinical side of it. Because it's important to understand the side behind it. It's important to understand what's going on inside of you. Because we can't see it for ourselves. But that's what I'm here to do for you today. I'm here to bring it back down to the human side. Because I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist. I'm 22 years old. I'm not even completed college yet. But the thing is that I don't have maybe that clinical experience. But I do have experience on the other side of this. Literally the other side of that therapist, Jared. We have all the decisions to make throughout our lives. We have big ones, we have small ones. And at 16 years old, you probably would not look at me, even today. I mean, if I was sitting there, you probably didn't notice anything really extraordinary about me. I look pretty, you know, pretty average. You just see me like, oh, there's another person. Just another person, right? But at 16 years old, I had a decision to make. And for years, I had been making that same decision. Not a decision about what to wear or what to do with my life or, you know, what degree or, you know, should I hang out with this person? That person. But the decision was life and death. And for years, I had tried to choose life. I tried and tried and tried. I've tried to walk down that path, but I fell and went right back that, to that decision, to that crossroads. And finally, on December 3rd, 2012, a date I will never forget, I finally decided I can't choose that path anymore. 
That day, that morning, I woke up and I said, that's it, I'm done. And that is why I'm here today in front of you. Because unfortunately, just like me, going unseen, under the radar, being unnoticed until something bad happens, more than one in four of my peers, my peers at the time, teenagers, high school age students, more than one in four suffer from depression, according to the Center for Disease Control Prevention, the CDC. I thought I was alone, and I had no idea how wrong I was about that. Because the CDC goes on to tell us that one in 12 of high school students, just like myself, who looked like me, who acted like me, talked like me, one in 12 attempts suicide. Amongst people from the ages of 13 to 25, suicide is not the tenth leading cause of death, but among young people, it's the second leading cause of death. That's why I'm here today in front of you. Not because I have a story to share with you, but because my friends, my peers, are dying. And the thing I discovered throughout my journey of recovery is that it's pretty simple, it's not easy, but it's simple. Is that you need to recognize the problem, you need to overcome the problem, but then I go one step further and say, no, it's not enough, you need to be unashamed. Right? Simple, not easy, I know. I know firsthand how not easy that is. But I'm a fan of simplifying things, bringing it down to the basics. And the thing is, I didn't know any of this. I had no education, I had no experience when it came to mental health. I was one of those really, really happy kids, maybe a little bit, you know, maybe, maybe too high, so I don't know, I don't know what was going on with me at that time, but I was a kid, I had the most energy of anyone I knew, the first one awake in the morning, I woke up just so I could live life more. I grew up in a very happy family, six siblings, you know, we're, all, we're, we're one of those families. <laughs> but around the age of 12, I noticed something started to change. I'd always been kind of emotional and have those, those highs that I want to be on most of the time. Most of the time I was riding that high. But when I did hit a low, starting around the age of six, I, now that I remember, now that I know, I can look back. When I hit that low, when something bad happened, I take that diet. I never realized at the time, but at 12, it took, those highs stopped happening. In fact, anything good stopped happening. Any kind of happiness just slowly stopped. And at first I thought, okay, I'm becoming a teenager, right? My brother went through this. I mean, I hope he's not watching this, but you know, it was, you know, his teenager, he had what a quote unquote a normal teenage, you know, life. In fact, it was, you know, pretty rough. So because I was quiet, because I was more withdrawn, my parents thought, okay, you know, great, we get a breath of fresh air with him. I was in my room reading constantly. Little did they know that was a coping mechanism. For all the pain, I was slowly more and more dealing with every single day. Just like Matt told us, with the symptoms, I wasn't able to sleep at night. And the thing is, like I said, I'm here to bring the human experience is that most of the times we'll list these symptoms and we'll think, that's terrible, right? We all collectively say, that's not awful. But those of us who live through them, we know, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad, right? The problem is it becomes normal. It's that the night I would stay up, not being able to sleep. You know, crying, eventually crying myself to sleep, just in pain and misery and agony at 12, 13 years old. I began realizing this isn't normal. The problem is, 
Not that I didn't say, oh, this isn't normal, I should talk to somebody. No, instead I, should, I made the wrong decision. That, there was a vital crossroads I had. Not the land of death, we didn't get there yet. But on the crossroads of talk to someone, not talk to someone. Keep it silent. And I decided to keep it silent. Because the problem is that I believed, I believed to be true. My world sense of reality told me nobody cares. Nobody can help you. This is who you are. This is who will you, you'll be forever. So when you're feeling all this and continuously feeling worse, anxious, depressed, feeling more and more suicidal, just trying to find some sense of love and purpose. But on top of that, I believe even if they could help me, they wouldn't want to. Nobody would want to. And this was my reality. This is what I believed to be true. Just as real as I'm standing up here in front of you. This is the problem. This is, you know, especially when we're talking about young people who don't have expression, don't know anything, or experiencing so much more than just this. All the stresses that are going on in today's world. It's even more than I was, you know, six years ago. Is I didn't know what was going on. I never had any kind of education. I was never told there's this thing called depression. I thought, oh, mental illness? Yeah, those are the people in the shows that I watched that are locked up in a straitjacket and hide inside. Or that homeless person on the side of the road muttering to themselves, you know, that you stay away from because they're quote unquote crazy. Right? Dangerous, right? That's what I was told. Little did I know, I was quote unquote, you know, medically crazy. <laughs> I am, I, and I you know, now it's like, okay, yes, now I know I am mentally ill. I have a mental illness. I have a disease, I am not a disease. But the cycle, the spiral continued. And finally, after four years of just consistently going downhill, four years of every day wishing I wouldn't wake up, wishing I could just stay in bed alone, away from everybody. Try to find some way to numb the pain to get away from it. Finally, after four years, I said no. And that's what took me to that day, December 3rd, 2012, a day I'll never forget. And on that day, it was a normal day. I, I, I mean, I wrote an entire essay that morning. Gave no signs, nothing was out of place. Because none of us knew, none of us knew what to look for. None of us knew the signs. My chore was to clean out our bay, 12-seater van. You know, it was, you know, we had seven, seven of us, seven siblings. 12-seater, bright green, dense all over it. It was very recognizable. It was like, oh, that's the Maxwell van. And when I was going out to clean said van, I asked my mom, I said, hey, can I have the keys so I could listen to the radio? Nothing unusual, nothing abnormal. But it's not what I did. Is that I went out there, I was trying to get up the courage of what I thought I was trying to. And little did I know at the time, I wasn't getting up courage, I was trying to override that survival instinct, that hope. That little, little bit of hope that I had, I was trying to fight. Not because I wanted to die. And I think this is an important thing for any of us who have lost someone. Because I know what that feels like too. 
is that what I want to talk to you, tell you personally, is that I did not want to die. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be free from the pain. And after so long of trying, I thought this is the only way. I wanted to live a happy and life. I wanted to love my family and feel the love from them. I wanted to have a purpose, but I thought that I couldn't. Eventually, I jumped into the driver's seat, turned on the ignition, hesitantly backed out of the driveway, and was able to drive down the road. I didn't get very far. Eventually, I came to a stop sign at Barrel Street to it, halfway hoping someone would hit me on the side as I did that. That didn't happen. I didn't know what I was going to do. My adrenaline was racing. My mind was clouded. My vision was blurred. I had no idea what I was doing, what was going to happen. All I knew is that this was my one chance. Is that after this, I had to do something that was permanent. I had to do something that was 100% sure. Because there's no way I was going to let everybody find out. And right at that moment, I saw the only the first thing I'd seen the entire time was a white SUV headed in the opposite direction. And that's when I saw that in that adrenaline-fused state, I said, here is how I'm going to end my pain. I'm going to be freed. I was almost excited at the thought of not waking up to all of this pain and misery, of this aloneness. I just couldn't shake day after day after day. And so I accelerated, the pedal in the metal, straight down, and going 60 miles per hour, I swerved, and slammed head on into that oncoming vehicle. As you might imagine, later we were told that it must have looked like an action movie scene, because both cars flipped in midair multiple times before coming to a crash on the side of the road. I was not wearing a seatbelt. I'm going to be honest, I don't remember much. I was in a state of complete and total shock. I barely have a fuzzy memory of climbing out of the driver's side window and running down the road. I didn't know what I was running from, I didn't know what I was running to. I had a million thoughts running through my head, but the number one thing that kept coming back, the one thing I realized was that my worst nightmare had come true. I had survived. I wasn't prepared for this. Like I said, I had to choose something that was 100% certain. There's no way I could go on another day. And all of a sudden, everyone's going to find out about it. Any chance I had at peace was gone. I eventually came back. I don't know where I was going to. I lived out in the middle of nowhere. <coughs> The police came, the ambulance came, and still in that state of shock, they asked me what happened, I said I did it on purpose. And so they arrested me. I was taken to the hospital, and that's when my parents came in. Now, I'm not a parent, I'm nowhere close to being a parent. Right? Okay, Mom? I'm nowhere close to being a parent. So I can't even start to imagine what they were going through in that moment. But to their credit, they walked in, the first thing they said is that we love you. We had no idea what's going on. We're here to help you get better. 
And I wish I could see that this was a moment of clarity. You know, in all the movies where like the heavenly light shows and my mind clears, all of a sudden I feel the love of everyone around me. I'm sorry that's not reality. I was still so far deep into that black hole. I didn't believe them. I thought, yeah, sure, all the secrets are out. Like, there's no hiding anymore. I know you don't care about me. I know you want me gone. I know that all of your lives would be better if I was gone, so stop pretending. I was giving a full body scan there that night, and we found out of that full scan that out of that 60 mile per hour crash, head on, no seatbelt, multiple flips in midair. I wish I was exaggerating when I said that. I could show you a visual like this somewhere. Out of that full crash, I escaped with only a scratch on my arm. I don't even have a scar. It was a miracle I survived. I think we can all agree about that. I shouldn't have. I had a detective face up, tell me point blank, you should not have survived this. And all I could think of was why? Why is this happening? Why do I have to be the only person in the world to feel this way? Because that's what I believed. I didn't even know, I didn't know there was a thing called depression. I had no idea. Still at this point, I still didn't know. I didn't know anything. And why did I have to keep living this way? Why does it have to keep going on? Why can't I just be free? Why? That question just kept coming and kept coming and kept prevailing. That night I was transferred on, on 5150. Some of you are familiar with that, unfortunately. On a 72-hour hold to make sure I wasn't endangering myself or others. And during those three days, I really had time to think. I had time to think about my past, my present, even, dare I say, my future. I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder there, right? No doubt. And during, and during that time, with like a little bit of therapy, starting medication, I was, by the end, I was kind of sick of it. I was like, okay, fine. Everybody here is telling me that I can get better. They're telling me how I can get better. I'm learning about what's going on. Fine, I'll try. I'll try to get better. Because of course I want to be happy. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to have a fulfilled life? Doing something that matters. Finding their passions and all of that. Who doesn't want to do that? And so I decided, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to try. And as many of you know, who personally been touched like this, and all of them can get better there. The ring of light that shines forth from the heavens and fixes everything. And like all like the baseball players start performing right and start winning like that, you know, cliche movie. It doesn't happen. What we learned in that's right, we recognize the problem, but we saw that whole journey of overcoming. That journey of overcoming that many of you know too intimately. I was going to therapy twice a week. I was on medication. I was trying to figure out what was going on, what was going to happen, and how to fix this. We were coming in blind. And again, props to my parents, who basically just researched 24-7, and said, oh, try this, try that, and me going, okay, sure, I'll try this, I'll try that. I went gluten-free for a year, it didn't change anything, but we still tried it. <laughs> we still tried it, and see, that's the thing. And that's the thing, and that's why I'm so passionate about coming speaking all of you. That's why I'm here today, is because we tried everything. And we learn this works, this doesn't. What we learn is that, hey, you know, exercise, like I said, with the light and the movement and the dopamine and serotonin and all of that. Wow, that actually makes me feel pretty good. And again, right, I wasn't healed right away. I wasn't like I went outside and some jumping jacks and was healed. But all of a sudden, I realized I feel better. 
Just a little bit. A little bit. A fraction of a percent better. And one thing I realized during that time that is now my mantra for life is that the goal is not to be perfect today. Because I don't know about you, but I want that. I would love to be perfect today. The goal is not to be perfect today. It's to be better tomorrow. And throughout all of our journeys, all of our personal journeys, whether it's mental health, spiritual, or physical, that mantra is keep on playing in my life. The goal is not to be perfect today. Because guess what? I made a lot of mistakes today. I forgot to do things. I don't know. I was getting my maps all wrong. I made a lot of mistakes today. But the goal is to be perfect today is can I do better tomorrow? Am I doing better today than yesterday? And when it came to my mental health, that was a revolution. One the reason why therapy is so important. Because guess what I learned that in the therapy class? That's what I learned from my therapist. He said, because I was frustrated. You know, a couple months into this, I was improving. I was. But I was still depressed. Maybe not majorly depressed, maybe not suicidal, but I was still depressed. I told him, I just want to be better. I can't just be happy. I just want to be happy just once. Like one day, just give me a happy day. And he said, well, where did you start? I'm like, oh, like three months ago, yeah, I guess. Oh, that was, that was bad. Yeah, that was bad. You know, three months ago, that was a very, very bad place. And he's like, where are you now? I'm like, oh, I kind of enjoy life a little bit, actually. Such a severe difference from why to end it all to, hey, I think I can do this. And seeing that, seeing that stark difference and how it's improving just motivated me further. And I think the conversation, what we all need to remember, is in all the mental health work we do, and all the stories that we hear, and all the information that we consume, the one thing to always remember is hope. That word that too often escapes us. That word that sometimes doesn't make it through all the darkness that we have going on. And that's one thing I discovered is that no matter how many relapses I've had, no matter how many difficult, difficult times and bad experiences I've gone through since then, the one thing I'll always remember is that I was in that place and I thought, I can do it again. And me being a very competitive person, I'm like, I'm going to do better than my past self. I'm going to beat, I'm going to beat him in a recovery and getting better. And through so many, uh, through this journey, through overcoming, through healing my body, mind, and soul, right? Healing my body through exercise, through getting my sleep cycle oriented. So that way I'm actually getting some sleep and I'm prepared for the next day. Healing my mind through therapy and medication, which I still do till today. And healing my soul through finding, mainly, the overarching story of that is finding forgiveness and peace. Something that we, again, too often forget about. I know how powerful forgiveness is in my own life because of what it did to my recovery. Not only being forgiven by my parents, by my siblings, by my friends, who have hurt so much, being forgiven through God through this act of profession, but also one of the most powerful forgivenesses I experienced was the forgiveness of Lenny Ross, the driver of that white SUV that I completely told and sent him to the hospital with lacerations all over his body from broken glass, broken sternum, and other injuries. I didn't know who he was. Well, I didn't know who was in the other car. I, I never knew. Because for me, it was all about finding something to end my own pain. And when I started thinking, when I started recovering, being able to think clearly, my reality was orienting itself. I came to the realization that that was a person. I mean, that was, that was another person. And every single day I wake up thinking, 
I am so happy that both him and I are still alive someday. And after many, many months of healing, I wanted to meet him. I wanted to get his forgiveness. I wanted, and not even get his forgiveness, I wanted to just simply say, I'm sorry because I never got to say that. Because I don't know about you, but if that happened to me, and I didn't know what was going on, I had no details about the other side of the story, I'd be pretty mad, I'd be pretty upset. But we managed to reach out to each other through the DA who was prosecuting me, because remember, I was arrested. That's a fun story. Not at all. Don't, just don't get arrested, you know? It's, it's, not, it's not an experience that you know you're missing out on. It's really nice. But we managed to reach out to each other. We met at a coffee shop about seven months after the crash. And I was so scared. I was a 16-year-old kid who had done something terrible to another human being. And I had no idea how he was going to react. But to his credit, he walked up to me, and I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of walked off the room. I was like, oh, I guess I'll give him a hug. That's what you do, right? I was so terrified. I gave him a hug, and the only words that came to mind was, I'm so sorry. And he kind of he just took a step back. He looked at me and went, oh, no, here it comes. <laughs> he looked at me and said, that's all I wanted to hear. And with those few words, I realized I had just been forgiven. And that wave of relief, and we talked to him afterwards for hours, my whole family was there. We learned that he too, he's actually a messianic Jew, and I was learning about what that was. And he was talking about how on the bed, hospital bed that night, when he heard that was a 16-year-old kid who hit him, when he learned that, he said, in that moment, I forgive you. And let me tell you, as someone who received that kind of forgiveness, that level of forgiveness, right? It's not going, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I forgive you, right, like we did as kids. But that level of true, real, powerful forgiveness, that was one thing that just kept propelling me forward. Because now I realized my why. I realized why that happened. I realized why I survived. It's so I could be here tonight with you. It's so I could start You Can't Be a Race six years ago as a 16-year-old kid who just wanted to do something, who just wanted to make a difference, who wanted to reach one person. I thought, I'm one person is going to read this little blog that I put up. One person is going to watch this you know, terrible little video that I managed to put together with the help of my brother. One person is going to watch this, I'm going to be done. And I'm going to be done, and I can go on and live my life. It's funny how our plans work out, huh? To this day, that video went semi-viral. The web page started getting just thousands and thousands of views. And I realized, oh no, <laughs> this is so much bigger than me now. Oh no, like what have I done? I said, finally, the biggest change happened when I first spoke. A 17-year-old kid spoke, I was speaking about 300 of my peers. And in that moment, that was the first time I had clarity where I saw the effect of my own eyes. I saw my peers, people my age, were coming up and talking to me about their struggles. And I saw the problem, but I also saw, what's that hope? And every single time, this is actually tonight. Tonight is my 100th talk that I have spoken to. Have been my own 
want to up to I see all of you. Because otherwise, who would I be talking to? Otherwise, I'm just speaking. My voice is resounding off these walls. It's you that carry my voice. It's you that have that decision to make. It's you that are now at this crossroads. And now you decide what to do. Because I didn't stop. I realized, no, I am not. I am keep going. I'm going to take my story. I'm going to take these skills. I'm going to do whatever I want. I started a marketing firm. like, I want to reach more people. I want to help people tell their stories. And that was like, that happened. I'm like, cool, that works. Okay, what else can I do? And what else I did is that recently, just this month, I joined eTherapyFinder.com, a wonderful new company who actually is working with the Diocese of Orange. And so, did you know, how many, how many of you have heard of eTherapyFinder? Okay, some of you. It should be all of you, because you know what? Your diocese, this place, right here. We have a group on there, but the diocese personally vetted therapists. So you want to send someone who understands you, your faith, the diocese itself, trust? You can go there, you can find a group, and you can find a list of therapists who are in the county who you can do video calls with all throughout the platform. As soon as I heard about this, I said, I'm doing this, I'm getting on board, you're not saying no. I'm going to be here, and I'm going to say this to everybody. Because what happens is that you want to get help, you want to find hope, and you have to book an appointment six weeks out with a therapist. Not anymore. Not today. I have my own group on there. You can find therapists that I trust. If you're a therapist, I want to talk to you so I can get to know you. I have to put you on my group and recommend you to people. Because it's all about finding hope. It's all about finding help and resources and support. And that's why we are all here today. That's why we're here. And that's why we do what we do. Every single one of you. No matter whether it's being unashamed by getting up here and speaking. Or whether it's being unashamed by having that story, having that knowledge, and smiling at someone who looks like they're having a bad day. Because, you know, Dr. Eric Cariotti, many of you may know him, wrote The Catholic Guide of Depression. Wonderful book. He started me on this whole journey. He tells a story in this book about a man who was, who, um, unfortunately, he um, ended his life by jumping off the Golden State Bridge. And you know what? They found his diary back in his apartment. And in that diary, you know what I said? If one person, one person, smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I will not shop. The power of being unashamed about using your experience for good with a smile, with a hug, with a how are you doing? What's been going on in your life? How can I help? Making mental illness an illness just like every other one. If someone has diabetes or cancer, what do we do? We welcome them and we say, what can we do for you? If someone has diagnosed schizophrenia, do we do the same thing? How can we take our experiences, our knowledge, our skills, and how can we benefit those who are in need of us? This is not just a science. This is a human-to-human -human relationship that we need to cultivate. We're all in this together. We're all in here together. None of us are separate from society and culture and the people around us, whether it's in our churches or everywhere else. None of us are truly alone. And because of that, we now have a decision. And personally, I want you to turn to the people you love, to go home tonight and tell the people you love that they're amazing, that they're indelible, and that they can't be erased. Come and talk to me afterwards. I have more resources and stuff for you Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Communicate with Confidence podcast. We'll be back to our normal uh, programming next week. I wanted to give you this little special thing today, though. If you are on iTunes, please give us a rating. It helps so much, and it's really the best thing you do to support the podcast that you listen to every day if you can't monetarily support them. So please do that. Again, check out the show notes, lukethemaxwell.com slash podcast. I hope to hear from you soon, and we'll be back on Monday. Do what you love, and remember to always stay on the positive side of things.